Thanks for watching, everybody. This is my first episode of the Uncommon Dialogue podcast. Today's guest is my friend Nicholas Gibert, lawyer, libertarian, uh, somewhat of an atheist, I guess. Depends what day of the week you want to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on Sunday. <laughs> and uh, Nick, thanks for coming. First episode. I'm I appreciate it. Glad to be here. And, glad um, to be here. Yeah, it's a pretty laid back podcast. Just We're just going to shoot the shit about what we've always done, about stuff that's concerned us. And yeah, how's it going? Um, it's it's going. Uh, my first question is, where can I find your podcast? Uh, UncommonDialogue.locals.com. That's the paywall right there. But I will have it available on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify as well pretty soon. Um, garnering, you know, I, as soon as I get everything going, it's just going to be on there. And I'll give you promo codes and stuff. I see your friends, so don't worry about it for a while. Um, but... You want to give a quick backstory of who you are and where you grew up and whatnot? And yeah, so so I'm originally from Michigan, but was fortunate enough to travel the world as a, as a child, uh, thanks to my father's uh, numerous assignments across the globe, and got to see a lot of different things, and uh, always had to watch what I said to people, and understand people, and understand that people were different than uh, than, than than me, and. Um, in order to engage, in order to be able to engage people, um, you know, I had to really understand where they came from, and so that has always given me an interest in, in the social sciences and uh, and uh, and in history. And so I'm, you know, somewhat of a history buff. And uh, the aspect of history that I'm interested in is the relationships between people, and uh, I think that also applies in business, which is a, an area where of grown into, um, you know, uh, my first profession was engineering. And then from engineering, from the intellectual property uh, aspect of engineering, I grew into the law. And uh, through the law, was really introduced uh, in earnest into in, in, in business. And so a lot of business people come to me. Uh, and I'm a technical consultant and a business consultant for people. And uh, I you know, from the first day I met you, I never really had any trouble speaking to you. Uh, you and I like to shoot the breeze a lot, and yeah. the, the topics are so varied, and the topics are, um, uh, you know, um, very intellectual at times, and not so intellectual at <laughs> other times, and and uh, I've, I've learned a lot from you, and um, consider you a really good conversationalist and a good friend. I appreciate that. That's the best compliment I've heard in a long time myself, <laughs> personally. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I'll tell you what. The probably the last best compliment I've heard was maybe a week ago when somebody told me, they're like, you know what? Remember a while ago? It was somebody I was having coffee with. They were like, a while ago when you told me, like, probably not be so paranoid about COVID anymore and just go outside again. Because really, like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, everything else that's a risk in the world, just go outside and just go do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right about that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's what more people not just should do, but, like, ought to do. Like, if you really do want to, like, achieve a certain level of satisfaction with your life right now with how things have gone over the last year, you just got to go and do what you ought to do, which is go live life. Step outside of the house and just stop being afraid of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can't. You can't live life life afraid everything's a calculated risk i mean when you think of taking an airplane trip to miami the most dangerous part of your trip is not the airplane ride to miami it's that drive to the airport and we'll drive to the airport which is 20 minutes away Mm -hmm. or to the grocery store without batting an eye and yet it's the most dangerous part of your day yeah so that's a calculated risk and you're not going to stop driving around town because it's dangerous Sort of how, like, that photo I remember showing you once is uh, that dude inside the wearing, inside the Whole Foods who was wearing a whole damn scuba suit yeah. <laughs> with the oxygen <laughs> tank as well. And it's like, dude, like, you got a higher chance of getting hit in, by a car than you do catching COVID inside of a fucking scuba suit. No, that's, that's absolutely <laughs> true. That's absolutely true. Yeah, it's just weird how paranoid it made everybody, like, right away. Yeah. 
Well, it, it it's 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 not just it's not just individuals that are paranoid. Unfortunately, it's also our institutions that have become paranoid. It's also our leaders that have become paranoid. Um, and in some ways, they're setting up a system that is and assumes paranoia. Um, and in time that you have a system that assumes paranoia and tries to combat paranoia, it often becomes very paternalistic. Yeah. And really, the nightmare of a libertarian. You know. Mm-hmm. For anybody watching that just doesn't know what libertarianism is, could you just give a brief rundown of what it is? Yeah, so libertarianism, especially the brand that that uh, that, that I'm the most interested in, which is the Night Watchman libertarian, it assumes that government is minimalist and um, doesn't intervene in the private affairs of its citizens, but is a bulwark, a stopgap for things that individuals cannot do well. So, for example... Uh, the military, uh, to a certain degree, the police, diplomacy, um, management of natural resources, the courts, uh, the courts, yeah, the courts. Uh, that's that's a that's a big one. Um, you know, um, the enforcement the enforcement of contracts, um, the uh, the existence of individual property rights. They're impossible without without a. Um, uh, they're impossibly. They're, they they cannot be. Uh, properly administered on a large scale without some kind of public um, uh, body mm-hmm. or what the Latins called res publica, the public thing, a republic. Yeah. Um, and so um, uh, land, public lands management, uh, Clean Water Air Act, uh, those sort of things that private individuals can do, but there needs to be some kind of slight public oversight in order to ensure some some sort of fairness. But that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, you start getting areas where the government knows better. Um, Assumes it knows better. Uh, exactly. Oh, that was yeah. That, that was a little tongue in cheek. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you start you start getting into areas where where they um, they start taking your money to be able to redistribute it inefficiently, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it becomes creeping socialism, you know. So, to what degree or how much socialism will you tolerate is is is, is the question today. Um, not enough people are asking that question, though. I don't think. No, not enough. Not enough people. Well, what's happening is that the new the the newer generations um, who haven't lived through the Cold War and haven't seen the existential threat that was made to this country, the United States. Um, they didn't live through that. They didn't live through a possible final countdown. They didn't live through Ronald Reagan moving Pershing missiles into West Germany in order to, um, uh, you know, in this game of one-upmanship with the Soviets who decided that they were going to move, you know, SS missiles into East Germany to see, to make the United States cower. Yeah. Um, these were actual real threats of socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the threat of socialism today is maybe not is not necessarily on a military level and maybe not on a external international level. external external level it's 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 a little more insidious it's internal internal on on a on a societal level on a economic philosophy level and cultural level and as well. and, and to a great extent uh, uh, cultural assumption level yeah yeah with it growing at the rate that it is it just seems like the individual himself is losing everything that he or she knows what it is about themselves and can only identify themselves or rather being told to identify themselves with set group A, set group B. It just doesn't matter. Like this is the group you belong to because we said this is a group you belong to and you the person yourself is just, is just not really applicable for anything. Well, if, if you think of it, uh, there's a French political philosopher. Uh, his name is Frédéric Bastia. Bastia. Mm-hmm. He wrote this book uh, called The Law, La Loi. And uh, he wrote it in, in the 1850s. And he, and he wrote precisely about the overarching, unifying characteristics of most socialist systems. And one of the things that he, that he mentions is this socialist attitude about lumping and grouping people into into groups and not treating them as individuals, treating them as, treating people as masses, treating people as, 
as, as pawns that can't think for themselves. And so when you, when you come into a, a juncture in society where individualism is being stomped out, both culturally and intellectually for, for, for people, um, you, you, start, you start to see um, the possible excesses that come with socialism, because essentially what Bastia says is that the attitude of the legislator, the legislator, is paternalistic. We know better than you. We are the government, and we will tell you what to do. You cannot decide anything for yourself. We know better, and we're going to pick winners and losers, whether it's through taxation and and and, and economics, or bar you wholesale from certain types of activities and say you can't do things because you belong to Group X or you belong to Group Y. Yeah, the problem with that, that people think it's a good thing because you're supposedly suppo- like making opportunities for everybody else at the cost of another group. But the problem is, like, well, if you just have one person that wants to do what they want with whatever it is that they want to do, as long as it's not hurting or harming anybody else or anything or any property, there's just that government that's in the way, which is also that collective body of or people. Really, they're just saying, like, no, you can't do things. This is our way of doing things, and you can't go against the grain, like, not even 1%. Yeah. It almost seems like COVID was, like, the perfect storm for that last year. Well, COVID, COVID was an excuse for a, for a, lot, a lot of laws. Yeah. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was the, it was the excuse for, you know, uh, raiding the Treasury in many ways. It was the, it was the excuse for, uh, uh, you know, uh, shutting, shutting down shutting down restaurants and, and justifying, most importantly, just justifying the jobs of bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here to protect you. Yeah. So you got, you, got into an, you got into an area where the government said, essentially, we're going to repurpose the main functions of several of our departments. Let's say here in the state of Michigan, the Department of Education here in Michigan or the Department of Health and Human Services here in Michigan had a particular mission pre-COVID, health and human services was to, to uh, uh, we can choose one function, for example, regulate nursing homes or regulate uh, 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 health care, you know, to, 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 re- to, to, regula- to regulate health care. Well, during the pandemic, just like the Department of Education, its core mission was repurposed from we're here to regulate a certain area of law and, and help people to, we are going to first and foremost make sure that you are safe from this pandemic. Well, that's great, but there should be one agency that does that. Yeah. Okay, maybe. But essentially, you get areas where my children were kept from school for almost a year, in some ways needlessly, um, because the, the, the agency that... that ran their schools, mm-hmm. was concerned with keeping them safe instead of educating them. Yeah. So the idea was is that what they should, probably should have done is educated them and then found mitigating ways to educate them. But their primary mission needs to remain educate them. They need to go to school. Yeah. You, know, you have a whole generation of kids that essentially lost a year. Yeah. Yeah. I... I couldn't even imagine being a parent in a time like this and, like, having to deal with, like, how do you juggle your responsibilities of being a provider while also being a, pa- a parent at the time when you're supposed to be the provider? Oh, this, is, this is a very crucial, crucial question for parents, but, and it was hard for dads, but for, for women, we've set back women's rights 40 years because most women, and uh, let's be honest, it fell on, 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 on uh, 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 primarily on on the women in our society, in, in, here in the United States at least, mm-hmm. to juggle this. Dads, dads, to a certain extent, had to juggle it too. But really, the moms took the lead on this. Yeah. And th- how many single, single moms had to make, you know, essentially babysit their, their five-year-old kid who couldn't really stand in front of a computer for eight hours a day yeah. instead of going to kindergarten and actually hold down a job. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. She was, t- she was essentially tied to the house. Yeah. 
And so, what does that what does that do? What does that do for this equal society that we that that you know is being espoused, where women have equal access, equal opportunity? It's it's an opportunity killer if you're tied down to the house. Yeah, it is. I mean, because you can't really explore any opportunities for yourself to improve your situation, whereas you have a pandemic happening that's already just eliminating so many people's opportunities to create wealth for themselves. And meanwhile, you have somebody with a situation like that. Yeah, which they don't even know what the hell to do. They, yeah. don't, they don't know what the hell to do. And I think there are still people right now that still don't know what the hell to do. I mean, they sit around and it's like, some of the schools are already closing again. So, so case in point, so countless Board of Educations erred on the side of safety because their new mission is to keep everybody safe. But they should have erred on the side of sending the kids to school and then possibly doing some mitigation, mitigating actions in that context. You know, they, they erred on the wrong side, thereby imposing and making it impossible for a large segment of our society to, 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 to function properly, to function the way it was functioning, which is, you know, in a, progress, in a progressive way to try to promote equality and an and, and, and opportunity for, for, for everybody. But if you tie somebody, if you tie, you know, whether, whether mom or dad down to home and they have to do the job of teachers... Then what are you left with? What, what, are you, what are you left with? You're, 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 you're turning back the clock at least a couple of centuries where people were home educated. Yeah. And all the consequences <laughs> that come with it. Yeah. There are plenty of consequences that come with it. I just don't know enough about that. I'm sure you know more than I do. But it really does just seem like the entire collective body of government just said to everybody, hey, look, all of you individuals cannot make choices right now pertaining to things. And we know better. Yeah. We're controlling your safety as well as your freedom as well. Whereas somebody like me, I don't not tied down with familial familial responsibility, but it makes me think, man. If I had children, like I'm still in charge of the house, what do I do? How can I have have or let a whole collective body of people tell me how to run my life? I know how to do things. I need to do things, or else there's a mysterious unknown there that I just don't want to go through because yeah. somebody else is telling me this is the path you're going to go on and that's it. It's like, well, what are the consequences? Don't worry about those. You'll be safe in the, in the beginning, the process, and the end. And it's like, no, I'd rather take a risk and leave the house and maybe risk COVID just so I could provide for myself and yeah. for my family as well. I'm glad I'm not in that position, to be honest with you. But So, so yeah, so, I mean, you have, you have, a, case, you have a case essentially where you had an emergency, Mm-hmm. A bona fide emergency in the first month, and what what is what is the nature of the emergency in in, in, in in this crisis? The nature of the emergency was that the hospitals did not have the public health plan in place to make sure that they were not overwhelmed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe the emergency can last one, two, maybe three months, but don't you think that after three months, even with or without a vaccine, that now as a hospital system as a healthcare system in, in general, nationwide, that now you are on notice. And now you will marshal the resources necessary in order to make sure that you're not overwhelmed. After three months, after 90 days, and that was essentially the law here in Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. After 90 days, it's not likely that there's a quote-unquote an emergency. Anything that you've extended and any measures that you've claimed are emergencies after that is essentially bureaucratic overreach because you've Assign to yourself a certain uh, uh, a mission, right? A paternalistic yeah. Yeah. assignment of mission that I am here to protect you. Like you anointed yourself. You've basically. anointed yourself. That's yeah. what I was looking for. Yeah. You've anointed, you've taken it upon yourself the mission to keep everybody safe when at the end of the day, we are a society where people need to make choices. And, and even here in, in America, it's even more marked because we are at least... We were an individualistic society where the emphasis is on the individual and individual choice. I mean, it, this goes back to my all-time favorite book, A Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell. I know you've seen the interview. Yes. I don't know if you've read the book at all yet. But he talks about people with the unconstrained vision and those with the constrained vision. And it was like people like me that said, like, all right, this is a bad situation right here, but I'm going to take it as it is and try and still maintain some level of normalcy operate my business to a level of normalcy, 
conduct life to a level of normalcy. And, 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 and take, take, and take, take precautions. And take precautions, and, and yeah. And be mindful of others. Yeah, of be course. mindful of others, yeah. Of course. But, like, those with the unconstrained vision were just like, no, we're just going to wipe the table clean. These are our rules right here, and we're just going to go full speed ahead no matter what the cost is. And it's like, yo, that's very dangerous. Not just rhetoric to espouse that, but it's uh, the notion and the thoughts behind there are just so damn dangerous. Because it's like eventually you got to pull the brakes at some point and say this was too much right here. Yeah. But they don't see that people with the unconstrained vision of how things ought to be in their, in their worldview is that we are always right because we simply anointed ourselves to be in this position. And that's it. We're going to go full speed ahead. And you can't say anything about that. That is so dangerous on so many levels that too many people don't realize that until after the damage is done. Right. Because they've given themselves, you know, if you want to use a little bit of philosophy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau talked about the lawgiver mm-hmm. when he was talking about the republics and how, how the will of the people needs to be taken into account. Well, the mechanism that he gave is this one one person called the lawgiver that is essentially a benevolent tyrant, if you will. Well, who is the lawgiver and how do you choose a lawgiver and how long does the lawgiver get to, get, to, get, to, get to wield that power? All those questions are unanswered. And essentially, these people have anointed themselves because they got you know, uh, uh, elected to office. They think that they can play the role of the lawgiver when... In reality, they're here for public service. They're here to actually listen to the people, right? Not yeah. tell the people. And, and there and there's some pretty pretty interesting windows on what can be done, uh, you know, uh, by these people. So in some countries in Europe right now, today, mm-hmm. um, and so what? We're April. Yeah, I know. I know. The, I know the UK is in complete lockdown still. You know, they can't go past ten kilometers from their home. They can't. They can't be out more than a half hour to an hour outside of their outside of their house, and most importantly, in Europe, they can't leave. If they want to leave Europe, they can't leave. It's like this big giant prison. I don't know, man. I got some friends of mine that live in London that I've seen it on their Instagram stories. I'm not going to snitch them out, but they've been going to places. They've been walking around. Yeah. They don't care. And, and London is not technically not the European Union. Yeah, that's true. I forgot right. about that. They, they did leave, actually. Yeah. But it just seems odd that they left the European Union because they didn't want to be down, bogged down by the rules of everyone else, and yet their rules are probably the most stringent in Europe. Right. And you, and, and you think of one of the reasons why they're so locked down in Europe right now is that the Euro- European agency in charge of you know, vaccine approval essentially sat on the approval process for months and didn't, didn't streamline anything. They wanted to go through, you know, they wanted to go through that process as rigorously as possible. But the problem is that you need to work for people. You don't need to work for your process, right? Yeah. Do and so one of the things, one of the things that that the United States did well was to streamline that process and say, okay, there's a public health emergency. The only way out of this is through a vaccine. We are going to leverage all the previous research and. We are going to do the best we can to cut out all the red tape and put the right people on it right now so that we can crank out an approval as quickly as possible without compromising safety. You know, I've told you this before privately. I'm not an anti-vax person. Yeah. I'm, I think personally anti-vaxxers are fucking crazy. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. But, and I'm not even against this vaccine, but... Don't you think a vaccine passport is a little bit of overreach and invasion of privacy for people to go where they want and do what they want as they please? It sets a dangerous precedent. precedent yeah. That's the problem with it. I do, I do see, okay, if this were the Black Plague and it had a very high mortality, uh, death mortality, yeah. uh, you know, mortality rate, mm-hmm. um, I, could, I could see where you would start to require it because anywhere you go you come in contact with people you yeah. could probably kill them you're donezo yeah you're donezo but when you think of what this particular virus and its its mortality rate you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to die from this yeah right yeah um it, it, it so again it's a 
the answer, it depends. It's a, it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of situation. And I don't think that there is enough justification for this particular disease to require a vaccine uh, passport. Yeah. yeah. You know? I'll tell you what. I'm, it, it seems odd to me that so many people are just so willing to just go ahead with, with a vaccine passport. And it's like, dude, do you understand, like, you're being rubber stamped with a digital piece of tech, like, you know, like a digital app that, yeah, you know, you basically lost a little bit more freedom as an individual to do what you want. Cause now all of a sudden you reach the gates of Yankee stadium or wherever you want to go to Madison square garden or here, Joe or not Joe's arena, the little Caesars arena. And you bought the ticket already, and they're telling you, well, you don't have a vaccine yeah. passport. We can't let you in. It's like, I, still paid for like do i get a refund i mean there are all sorts of implications i i don't think people realize like how nasty things can get yeah because the next the next thing is is that you know do you have a certain type of genetic mutation you know what we're what what they're doing here is that they're establishing that a certain health condition uh, uh 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 regulates whether you have access to certain public infrastructure, because let's let's be honest, airlines and and ports and airports and and roads and and so on, all that is public infrastructure, right? It, it, it's in the public domain yeah. because the public domain uh, uses it. it uses it or is the best way of regulating the use of it and making sure that there's fair access. But if now you predicate access on a certain health condition, you're opening the doors for all sorts of all sorts of abuse. Down the line. So it's a little depressing when you think about because it, it's right. like, well, all of a sudden, I've been seeing the memes on Instagram and elsewhere of like, you know, basically people are going to start carrying papers like they did in, <laughs> you know, the era of World War II when certain people had to carry certain documents around just to indicate like who they were and like what they were. Yes. And America wasn't founded on that. I mean, you, no. you, you just went and just became you, the person who you are. Right, as, as long as you didn't bother anybody, you could do anything that you really wanted. Yeah, I mean, right? you know, that's that's the individualistic freedom, uh, uh, and and uh, in some ways, American exceptionalism for the longest time mm-hmm. was that you had certain guaranteed individual rights, and you uh, had a government that was there to help you and otherwise stay out of your business and let you run your life, let you run your business, because you as an individual know best what's for you, what's best for you and your family. And you can, you're free to innovate. You're free to, you're, 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 you're free to make money. You're free to, to help others. You're, you're, you're free. Yeah. Right. You know, it, 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 I mean, in all yeah. seriousness, when you think about it, it's just like, it's like, dude, how does the government even know to make millions of decisions across the board, across different areas for millions of different people that have different circumstances. It's impossible. Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, the only only thing that they did to basically streamline that was to introduce possible, like, notions of, like, hey, this is a vaccine passport right here, and this is a clear yes or no choice right here. I mean, to all of a sudden tell people, like, you have to, like, get this thing right here, or you can't go to the mall, or you can't go to the shopping center, you can't go to anything. It's You're limiting the individual. That's what it comes down to. Right. And what you're doing is that you're, you're, tell, you're, you're, you're saying to them, we're taking away your choice, and we are assuming that you are not smart enough to see that this vaccine is actually good for you and good for the people around you. And we're assuming that you're too stupid to see it. And we're assuming that that, again, the population, instead of looking at them as individuals and seeing that, hey, you can make that individual choice, we're grouping you as a mass and saying, citizens of the United States, we're making the decision for you. You have to all get it. Otherwise, you can't function. You know what really pisses me off about the, those with the unconstrained vision? And it's kind of obvious, like, who I talk about when it comes to those with the unconstrained vision, is that they're literally anti-choice with virtually everything. It's a form of intolerance. It's a form of intolerance. I mean, those with the unconstrained vision of reality literally cannot stand that I can just make a decision for myself that's different from them. Just, just remember what Albert Whitehead said, that, uh, just to paraphrase, essentially that all of Western philosophy is just a, but a footnote to Plato. But what is one of the main things that Plato has in, in his vision? 
One of the things, main things that Plato has in his vision is that everything is preordained and that everything comes from the top. Yeah. God is the ultimate decider. And so what happens is that some people anoint themselves to that level, to that level where yeah. they're going to make all the decisions. Everything is command, command economy, command, uh, uh, command society, command uh, uh, education. education to be whatever direction it wants. And to there go is to. no, there is no, there is no tolerance for any kind of variation. And remember, yeah. what's what's what, we need to evolve as, as a society. Granted, but remember, what's the main hallmark of evolution? Generic genetic variety, mutation, non-orthodox genome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have you have a normal genome, and then there's an outlier, a mutation. It's an opportunity to grow. Yeah. Right. So if you squelch any kind of variation of opinion, if you squelch any kind of variation of ways of doing things, of conducting your economy, you're going to get no evolution. You're going to get no evolution whatsoever. Yeah. You know. None. I mean, just look at, like, education now. Like, dude, look at the University of Michigan. They're not allowing students on campus or in the buildings or anywhere unless they get the COVID vaccine. Right. And it's like, at some point, somebody's just going to have to say, like, look, I'm paying this ridiculously high tuition, and you're not letting me in the very place I'm paying all this money for. Yeah. Don't you think there's a case to, like, let that person in because they paid a financial and you know, there's a financial incentive behind the university to say, like, well, look, we get what we're doing and all, but, like, this person is paying money and they are a customer just like everybody else. Yeah. We need to let them in, whether we like it or not. Fortunately, that customer also has the choice to say to the University of Michigan, I'm not interested in your service if you don't let me in, regardless yeah, of whether my status too. is. So there's a, there's still a solution, fortunately. But the day the day where there is a monopoly of universities and you have an assigned monopoly – yeah. An assigned university, let's say in public schools, for example, you have a, you have an assigned school, and let's say the day the day comes where you can't go to a school different than other, than the one that you're assigned, then it becomes a really big problem. Yes, it almost seems like we're heading down that road, anyways. It, it's I mean, possible. I mean, yeah. I mean, some people are just so like so in tune to like where they want to go that they really don't care like about other universities at all, but yet like. You do bad on a test or an exam, the SAT or ACT, if they're still even being done these days. I, I have no idea. But it's like, at some point, some I see it now, like, and I've heard about and I've read about how some high schools are telling some students, no, you can't go here because of A, B, and C. Whereas, like, they'll tell you, like, you could go here because of X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's almost like reverse affirmative action, really. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a, there's a, I think it, at NYU, there's Professor Scott Galloway. Have you ever heard of that? Sounds familiar. Yeah. There's he, a couple people I'm familiar with, but like not. He was saying that there's a big cull coming for the, for the universities. By and cull, that, what do you mean? And uh, that there's going to be essentially uh, probably 30% of the universities will not make it past the pandemic. I'll be fine with that. Um, and part of the reason is that there's been no innovation in their product. And, well, yeah. And most of all, They've, they've opened the door for people to see that they're not really offering any value add to their life. I'm thinking a lot of these lib small liberal arts colleges that don't have a really deep applicant pool are, are essentially they're, they're charging a lot of money for something that hasn't changed in over 40 years. Yeah. You're and talking about the actual diploma. That product has stayed, stayed the same, or the exactly. cost of it has gone up dramatically. Dramatically, with no actual value add. And essentially, people are seeing that it can be replaced almost entirely by online courses. Yeah. And so the premier... They're being shown for free, by the way. Right. And they're being shown for free. Think of MIT courseware, yeah. for example. Uh, but the, 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 big, the big schools, especially like the Ivy schools, the premier schools are really going to have no trouble getting applicants, continue to continue access to continued quality applicants. The second-tier schools are going to have to reach into their wait lists. Yeah. The third-tier schools don't have a wait list, and, which means that their student bodies are going to automatically shrink, which means that their cost per student is going to skyrocket, and it's, their, their business case is not going to 
not going to be justified. Because eventually those leftover students will leave because, I mean, for anybody that's never taken economics, economics really is a great equalizer. Microeconomics especially. Yeah, and it's also like the great educator as well because it's funny how when people realize like they never took economics, how suddenly smart they became once all of a sudden it started mattering to their money. Yes. And not no, nobody else has. Once it started hitting their yeah. pocket, people become very smart very quickly. Yeah. But, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying. Like, education now is just basically all indoctrination and no innovation. See, you're 100% right. right. I mean, and, with, the exception, with the exception of the last 20 years, mm-hmm. which there has been innovation coming out of universities, like, prior to then, there really has been very little. It was all done by the individuals. When you say innovation, you mean research. Yeah. What I, what I mean by innovation is innovation in the educational product for students. That's mm-hmm. what I mean by innovation. Yeah. Okay. Now, unfortunately, all this matters, and why does it matter? Because it seems to me that we almost have a caste system. Oh, 100%. A caste system where the caste that you are in is determined by the university that you went gone to. to. Yeah. I mean, there's no way in hell that somebody that went to Oakland University, which is where you went, would ever have a chance of, I don't know, having any type of connection to somebody that went to Georgetown or UVA or NYU or Harvard. There's, there's no chance in hell that would happen. I mean, most, I, most people know that. Most people that went to Oakland know that. Most people that went to Harvard, Georgetown, UVA know that as well. Well, the they, thing is that I do have connections with people that have gone to those institutions, but those people have connections to people that are willing to open their wallets much more readily to them than they are to me. So it's a financial... It's, uh, it's more like a financial... It's, um, a, it's a financial and a power thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, when you think of when you think of the all the different graduates and the list of graduates from from, from Harvard, they read they read like a who's who yeah. of uh, 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 of business, whether they graduated or not, right? You're, you're thinking of Bill Gates and Larry Ellison who went to Harvard but didn't didn't graduate, but just the fact that they went there, they got to know the right people yeah. who have access to the right fina- financing, and and so on. And so what you've done is that you now you've created, because they went to that institution and they're part of that club, you've created a caste system yeah. where you have others that have good ideas also knocking on that door trying to say, hey, what about me? Well, what about what, you? What about you? Yeah. Where did you go? Yeah. It's unfortunate. I mean, I think if you were to ask like 10 people on the street if they'd rather hire somebody with a degree in mathematics from, I don't know, Michigan State. Mich- Michigan State, Western Michigan University. Yeah. And or whether they would hire somebody with a degree in gender and women's studies from fucking Northwestern University mm-hmm. or Stanford. Yeah. Most people would probably pick the name school right. with the bigger name, which is unfortunate, but that's just like that's just what well, it is. They've built those universities to their credit, they've built the, they've built their brand. Yeah. Right? And yeah. That, and that's that's good for them. But the the issue is that there is no alternative power-broking brokerage circuit for people that didn't go to those universities. There, there, there needs to be some, you know, I have great ideas too. I'm perfectly capable of running a, running a, a good business too. Mm-hmm. But it, it'll take me a little more in order to get access to the right people, unfortunately. Isn't it odd, though, that those at these higher ed universities preach that type of stuff? Like, oh, we need, like, a more balanced playing field. But it's like, well, you guys are the imbalance. You're part of the imbalance. You guys are preaching about we need to make it better, but, you know, I don't see you guys actually showing to make it better. You know what I mean? It's like, how often is it that you'd see, like, a Harvard grad married somebody that went went to Eastern Michigan University? You just don't see that shit. It just won't happen. There's a book I just remembered right now. It's called The Big Sort by Andrew Sorkin. I don't know if you ever read it. No, I haven't. But uh, he talks about how basically people are – separating themselves willingly based on the profession that they hold and whether they would, like, marry or build a family based on the person with that same exact profession as them. Yeah. So it's, like, becoming, like, really commonplace now to see lawyers marry lawyers, doctors marry doctors, small business owners marry small business owners. Well, I and mean... This, is, this really only started in, like, the late 80s, early 90s, and it's just basically accelerated since then because before then, and he has the statistics to prove it. I can't remember any of them off the top of my head my head but like recently it was like 
in an earlier era of America, it was really common to find somebody who was a small business owner, be married to somebody who was a doctor, and they raised right. a fine so, family. So I don't it. necessarily have a problem with those people's choices. Yeah. And they can marry who they want, and, you know, we're individuals. And then, mm-hmm. But where I have the problem is, is upstream, is that a lot of these people are byproducts of a certain educational system that has indoctrinated them to make these kinds of choices. Yeah. That's, that's where I may have an issue. Yeah. Right? I mean... It just doesn't help that you have people graduating with the degrees of, like, I mean, like, as I said, genders and women's studies or, like, fucking yellow dance theory or what have you or what have not. It, degrees that, like, I've never even fucking heard of before. Mm-hmm. It, half the people have never even heard of the disciplines that people are getting awarded degrees in, and yet it's, like, they go out into the world. It's, like, they can barely hold a job at Starbucks because they're getting screamed at by somebody who can't make their latte correctly. Right. So the issue is the issue here here with that is is actually it comes down to economics. You know, there's a student loan crisis in this country because people get degrees that are not marketable. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they get degrees essentially that they can't afford and the schools know that they can't afford, but the entire system is being doped by the good faith and credit of the US government and the student loan program where there is a disconnect between the marketability and your ability to pay back using that degree, the education that you got for that degree. Yeah. And uh, 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 the, the, actual, the actual funding of that degree. So right now, student loans are non-dischargeable, which means that the lender takes zero risk. They don't have to assess the marketability of your, of your degree. They'll just give you the money, you sign for it, and then... Essentially, you're you're a financial slave for life because you can't discharge any of those loans. Uh, by and large, there there are ways, but yeah. But for most people, you can't discharge those loans in any kind of bankruptcy proceeding or or any kind of uh, um, um, you know situation where it's difficult for you to pay back mm-hmm. because the because, because the degree is not, not, not been market, analyzed yeah. for marketability. Ability. Yeah. Right. I mean, and when so people will scream, well, what people should be able to get any kind of degree degree that they want and and and, and have the opportunity to get a degree. Yes, yeah. to a certain extent, if they're able, once they get that degree, to actually shoulder the cost that it took I to mean, get that degree. It's I mean, like giving it's like giving a loan for a jumbo house to somebody that you know can't pay it back. back. Yeah, that that that's that's predatory. It is, yeah. And so our student loan system is predatory. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, though, I will go back to the individual choice is that some students just eventually got to realize, like, man, I really need to work a lot harder somehow to get into an engineering class or two instead of taking a freaking, like, the life in, in times of said agricultural plant in fucking... Virginia Beach. Yeah, you know that nobody I mean? cares. That nobody cares. You know what I mean? Nobody's going to pay you a dollar for nobody's it. Nobody's going to pay you a damn dollar for it. Yeah. I mean, if people really, and students especially, realize that, but the problem is that, like, they're being said, fed so much bullshit from these universities that they really do think that they're just going to leave and they're going to get hired left and right. There are going to be offers for them left and right, and it's just going to be, like, an easy ride after that. Right, it's like, because they're being fed the myth of do what you love instead of do, do what, what you're good at that you that you that that you can do that everybody wants that nobody wants to do for themselves right yeah that's where you want to be you want to be in an area where there's no competition you are the best at it and that you're actually good at it and by the way by and large for most professions you'll end up like actually probably liking it if you're that good yeah i mean if you're good at it you're going to make money and either way, if you're as long as you're making money and like saving the money at the end of the day and being able to pay off your bills and whatnot, you can transition to something you else. Can transition to something else. I mean, there's very few worse positions to be in than to be like financially burdened, especially by student debts. I mean, what's the number at now? It's like what one point four trillion. Yeah, it's pretty high. Dude, that's that's astronomically high. Like, there's I don't see no way that like half the graduates in this country can even pay those numbers back. I mean, the other half, maybe, maybe if they really right. hustle for it. Yeah. But like, it's a, it's a form of financial slavery for sure. Yeah. I mean, 
it makes me weird, like, seeing people graduate and then all of a sudden, like, think of themselves, like, I have to become a, an activist now because we were all done. And we, we got fed lies at by mysterious financial institutions that we were going to get these jobs and we're not getting them now. I mean, it's, I mean, like, what do you even do about that? Like, about these so-called, like, education activists that want to call it free education. I, what do you do? I, you make it free, like, everybody's going to start going, and eventually, like, you just water down the competition even more. Right. You know, if everybody got degrees, nobody's really marketable at that point. The whole point of getting a degree was to, like, stand out from the crowd and get paid a little bit more. But if everybody gets degrees because education's free, nobody's really going to be, like, standing out, and you're not going to get hired. Yeah, one solution is basically to make these these loans, especially loans that were that are that are considered uh, predatory, yeah. and you can create criteria for that. Make those dischargeable, yeah. and then make sure that future loans, um, you know, are not awarded or given uh, without without precisely that that economic analysis of of likelihood of being able to shoulder that cost in that profession. Yeah, I mean, the other problem is that the universities themselves from, like, a top and, like, middle level and on down to the students, that they've basically turned into, like, activist organizations as well. I mean, it, it's pretty clear. Everybody knows that, like, what direction most colleges and universities lean. Everybody knows it. Yes. But it's, like, when they're thinking of themselves as activist organizations, and you know, you're going to have somebody like me just say, like, no, I need an education. I'm paying this much money. I don't want to be told stuff and then be mad about it later at some person I've never met in my life, probably will never meet. I mean, the universities are, like, notorious for this, and most people probably don't know is that, you know, you get to college, and it's like all of a sudden, like, as Thomas Sowell once said, like, the more in one direction that universities and colleges lean, you tend to see students separated by groups versus the other direction where you'll see students just mingle freely amongst each other. Where they have the free exchange of ideas and and have some semblance of tolerance for anybody else extraneous ideas or non-standard ideas yeah which gives you that opportunity for evolution again right and and we're coming back to not being treated as a group but treated as an individual yeah right and, and when these graduates leave and especially like the so-called journalism majors when they leave and then get a job at you know the usual suspects, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, all of them. It, they think everything is just grouped together all over. And it's like, no, like when you get out to the real world, people just make transactions with whomever they want, whenever they want, in any type of way they want. Sometimes randomly. Sometimes randomly. And when people like that graduate and get these jobs, they all of a sudden anoint themselves almost back to what you said, to politician-like thoughts of thinking, I need to put these articles out there to get my ideas out there. And it was always assumed that people, like graduates, would get out into the real world. They would all of a sudden, like, start to revert back to normalcy, like, in their mind and think, not everything is that bad. My situation could be better, but it's really not that bad. They're just not doing it. They're not going that way. And we're starting to see it now, like, in the media, of course, like, even outside of, like, technology. You walk around, like, you see the political stickers everywhere. People wear them like a badge of honor almost. And it's, I'm, I'm not, like, optimistic about the future of education in America. I'm just not. Well, maybe uh, maybe technology is the answer, you know? <laughs> I mean, in one sense, I hope not. In another sense, I do. But it's like when you have, like, the major, you know, major power players controlling the flow of information, I mean – at some point, somebody's got to say, like, man, this just can't strictly be like this. Like are, you this are you talking about data hoarding? Is that what you're talking about? Where the, the large the large technology providers, um, social media, search engines, and so on, hoard information, treasure troves of information on individuals? Is that what yeah. we're talking about? Yeah, and, like, basically crafting a whole narrative around things to get people to go in one direction. Right. Well, there, there, are, there are several models that are at competing models, that are that are out there. the The American model is that the companies own all that information, and oftentimes they know more about the individual than the individual knows about themselves. Yeah, and it's happened actually. Um, it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. But for example, in Europe right now, they're considering a different model where the technology players the the the, the, te the technology players 
don't own that information. That information is actually stored by the state. Mm-hmm. And so all that's that... That's just as scary, too, in one sense. Well, the it's scary in a different way, yeah. right? What if the state is no longer so benevolent? Yeah. Right? But essentially what they're doing is that they are, they're, putting, they're putting into place an infrastructure for centralized concentration of that information that individual companies can collect that information, mm-hmm. but they have to actually send it and store it and they can't and they don't own it and the individual supposedly owns it, owns it but, they but it, the government has custody of it or at least the quasi-government entity that's meant to equalize everything for all the different technology players yeah actually has custody of it mm. it's a different way of seeing things yeah it's a different way of seeing things and the problem is that like when you have one of these like politicians in Europe just all of a sudden anoint themselves to that level of thinking, I simply know what's best just because of the position that I'm in. Yep. I mean, I mean, I, in one sense, I don't blame them because it's like they have a job to hold and maybe because they have to pretend to be certain in order to gain support for that. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, somebody's got to stop and say, you know what, like... But, but the good news is that it, assuming, assuming that the government doesn't go crazy or assuming that, you know, for the U.S. that these companies see that they're going to actually end up squelching the goose that laid the golden egg if they, if they squelch all individualism out of, out of society. Yeah. If they do see this, technology does remain an answer to our education problem, honestly. Why? Because... Uh, Thomas Friedman, for example, wrote this book. I think it's 2004, maybe three. The world is flat. And he talked about how kids in India now, because thanks to the internet and thanks to technology, now have access to the same exact education mm-hmm. sitting in Hyderabad as some guy sitting in Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah. All of a sudden, technology becomes this enabler for delivery of education where a lot of these institutions lose a lot of their current inherent power because of, you know, regionalization. Yeah. Because of, you know, their their brand name. The brand name starts to not matter anymore. Yeah. Or, or at least much less, right? A kid can actually go and get a autonomous driving or image processing course from MIT courseware. Mm-hmm. Like that. And then get a job at Tesla. Get it for yeah. free in many yeah. cases. Or he can go to Cal Poly. And get access to their their uh, their uh, their courses probably for a smaller for a small fee. Yeah. But my point is that the technology has become has become this great equalizer. And and it, and it, it, what's amazing is that in the history of man, most technologies are double edged, and that okay. they they have this tremendous possibility for great good. But also this possibility for evil. Yeah. You know, you think of nuclear fission, the nuclear bomb, but you also have nuclear power, which may, in some ways, if implemented properly, without dual-use technologies, may actually solve our environmental problem for generating clean clean energy. Well, yeah, because you won't have solar panels and wind turbines everywhere. Most of all, you won't have you won't have uh, 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 greenhouse gases. Yeah. And as long as you know how to recycle fissile material, you're golden. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you you think you think of these dual dual use technologies, and fortunately, in the great history of man, man has always chosen to use the good side of technology. Yeah. And so you have things until that, until recently. Well, even recently, I mean, there's been an explosion. There's been a, recently there's been a huge explosion in the use of technology. And overwhelmingly, the, the, the record shows that we always choose the upper trajectory. The upper trajectory. Yeah. Now, there have been cases where we haven't, right? And we've paid for it. Yeah. You know, atmospheric testing of nuclear bombs, for example, yeah. caused the strontium problem that Linus Pauling talked about, which was essentially the pollution of bones. Uh, and 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 the and uh, uh, instead of having calcium being uh, being put in bones, the decaying strontium was being put in bones, and the strontium would decay as mm-hmm. as it was as it as it was replacing because of the atmospheric fallout of nuclear uh, nuclear uh, nuclear stuff. But my, that, the I point think, is, I think that's one of those things that whoever's going to listen to this 
wishes they didn't hear about. <laughs> right. Well, he solved the problem. He, Linus Pauling essentially became a crusader and mm-hmm. solved the problem. And today there is no atmospheric testing of nuclear bar, power, uh, bombs. It's okay, always well, that's good. under it's always underground because of him, because he found this problem, mm-hmm. right? And we, it, but initially we didn't take the upper, the the high road on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But my point is, is that this technology, what it's doing, is that you, for example, you think of the development of autonomous driving. It's solving a lot of problems. It's going to solve a lot of problems. Yeah. But it also has the opportunity to be a power grab. The day that you no longer are allowed to drive your own car and that you must use autonomous driving technology to go somewhere, it opens the abuse, for example, for the government saying, no, you can't go to the stadium on Fridays. Yeah. And they won't, and the car will not go there. You and I have talked about that privately before, and that's just like an incredibly it's scary. scary. <laughs> yeah. It's scary, but guess what? I predict that with very few exceptions, that will never happen. The government has no, and us as a society have no interest in telling you, Lance, that no, you can't go to the stadium on Fridays. It's just not going to happen. Right? Yeah, I mean... One thing I don't like in terms of, like, the cultural aspect that technology has had is, like, basically made most people hysterical armchair activists. Mm, interesting concept. Can you develop that further? I mean, you go on Facebook. Well, I don't have Facebook, and I got rid of it. I just couldn't, I couldn't stand to see people typing in all caps about all kinds of stuff about social justice initiatives. And I'm like, man, like, I... For one, like you, you're not even making any type of legible sense. You're just venting on a, basically on your keyboard, all the while thinking you're actually like helping yourself out by venting yeah. on there. All you're doing is just turning yourself into like a digital incredible hole because you're just going to get more pissed off the more you see stuff on the yeah. internet. You're essentially feeding yourself the same the same fuel to the fire you're trying to extinguish by just venting on Facebook or Instagram, yeah. or whatever. I mean, people are so like. The other thing about technology is that it's made people like attached to labels, which armchair, you know, digital armchair activists basically love using and putting out there on their stories all the time, day after day, day after day. I mean, dude, I get on Instagram sometimes when I wake up in the morning after I brush my teeth, whatever, just to look at like what's going on or just to see messages from people and whatnot. And I, I'll click the stories, and it's always like the political stuff first. And I'm like, man, nobody's trying to see this at seven thirty in the morning when they're eating eggs. Or working on the gym. <laughs> Nobody's trying to see that garbage, man. Put that shit up in the middle of the day when I'm on lunch or not even, like, don't at all. I prefer But, like, if you're going to, like, man, put it at a time of the day where you, yeah. where most people, like, won't see it. Like, So why don't we talk about the root cause of that, right? This digital armchair activist. Yeah. You know, this is a byproduct of an intersection of one access to technology, yeah. which is ubiquitous nowadays, right? Yeah. And that's okay. But... The thing is that you're you're talking to you're talking about a um, uh, a series of people that now have the con- the notion and the concept that the goal of society is social justice. Yeah. Okay. Social justice is not it's not, not true justice. It's not true justice. Yeah. Okay. Social justice can be uh, an ends. Okay. Not a goal, but some. A destination that you need to go mm-hmm. eventually. But the thing is, is that it cannot be the means. And for a lot of people, it they, use the it, they use it as the means to get there. Yeah. Right? It, it just cannot, it, it cannot be. The ends cannot be the means. It, it just doesn't work. And why? Well, the fact of the matter is that social justice is only possible when there is some modicum of prosperity. Nobody yeah. cares about social justice when you're when when the wheels have come off of society and everybody is struggling for s- basic subsistence. Like Some of um, the first things that go, for example, are women's rights. Yeah. So, and, 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 and you know, you think of fifth century Rome. You had a society. You had a society prior to that that was fairly progressive in, in terms of women's rights, and then the barbarians came, destroyed, destroyed the the empire, and all of a sudden, within the space of a generation, no women's rights. Yeah. It was essentially the strongest man actually wins, right? Yeah. And, and it was the the, 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 the power grab, the, the barbaric power grab, the, the 
the brute force mm-hmm. ruled. Yeah. Right? And, and there was no social justice. It was, I'm stronger than you. I have a bigger sword, and I'm going to cut your head off if you don't like it. Right? So the only way that you can have prosperity, I mean, uh, and the only way that you can have social justice is that if you ensure prosperity, because prosperity lifts the boats for everybody, and it allows people in power to say, okay, we're going to let go a little bit of our control, mm-hmm. let go a little bit of our resources, let go of a little bit of a little bit of what we have to allow the great masses to actually partake. And at that point, when you have the resources to do these great initiatives, then you then you start to get social justice. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate yeah. that that's how the world works, but that's effectively how the world works. You know, you need prosperity in order to have social justice. Well, yeah, because you're not seeing social justice being enacted by people at the bottom in places like Venezuela. Right. Yeah. Which is sense. which is a victim of creeping socialism. Yeah. Right? And, and Venezuela, and I'm glad you mentioned Venezuela, because, you know, when we talk about the evils of socialism, we, te- we teach in this country the, the great part of socialism, which is, uh, you know... Uh, uh, a social safety net. Maybe. A social safety net. Yeah. Taking taking what taking the extra resources that the well off have and redistributing them. Mm-hmm. It's all about redistribution, right? Mm-hmm. Taking those and giving them to people, and offering them free health care, free this, free that. But the problem is that we don't teach the second stage of socialism. The second stage of socialism is that we've. Those who had extra resources no longer have any more resources. They've been taken away, and, and it's been tapped out. And now you have no resources to give to anybody. Yeah. So and so you became, get starvation. Everybody became equal. Everybody became equal from the bottom. bottom. Yeah. But the problem is that now there's no initiative because there's no incentive for progress. Yeah. And no prosperity. And therefore, socialism in the end must be and always is liberty killing. Yeah. And for a libertarian, that's unacceptable. Yeah. Do you know who Dennis Prager is? Yes. He had, he had a really great saying I heard once, like from an interview he gave maybe 10, 11 years ago. He just said it like this. The bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. Mm. It's kind of like Ronald, Ronald Reagan's uh, paraphrase of a government that's uh, 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 big enough to give you everything that you want is also big enough to take everything that you need. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I mean, people are so enacted with, like, social justice and all the buzzwords that follow with it that everybody's heard now these days. Right. I mean. You must ensure prosperity, bottom line. Yeah. And prosperity, especially with our capitalistic uh, 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 system of, of, of economics, which to date has been proven to be the best one out there. I mean, well, yeah, it's obvious. So you can look at how many people can come here, come here, not born here, and just make it. They have to work really, really fucking hard. But they can do it, and they usually do do it. Yeah. And those are the job creators. Those are the, those are the people that seek the opportunity and seize the because opportunity. Because they have initiative. Because they have initiative. They take risks. It came from them. It came from them. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It didn't come from the government. This is the problem with those with the unconstrained vision is that they really do truly believe in like a trickle-down government. You know how they always say like trickle-down economics and they yeah. criticize it, even though really there's no theory called trickle-down economics? Yeah. They really do truly believe in the trickle-down government of things that like, all right, government has to be here, 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 and here in your life. And it's like, no, like I, you're going to kill my own initiative within me if you're going to stop me at every step of the way. Get out of my way. I need to be the person I need to be. That, In a sense, that really is like American destiny, like people taking charge of their own life and doing what they want with it. If others don't like it, well, then so be it. But people have to take initiative for themselves. And so I think, you know, pretty much, pretty much one of the things that we, we we need to make sure of, and and this can be almost our, 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 our concluding uh, 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 or parting thought is that please stand up for individualism. Don't, don't have this herd mentality. Yeah. That's not going to carry you at the end of the day. I got a question I want to ask. I just thought of right now. Sure. With how wild the last month or so has been in terms of like the narrative 
driving stuff. Do you see a positive so far to 2021 America? I asked you this question privately, but, you know, yeah. this, was, this was two months ago, and a lot of shit's changed in two months. So, so we, we've, spent, we've spent a few trillion dollars on, on, on uh, stimmies. <laughs> Stimulus checks. Uh, there's, talk, uh, there's talk of student loan discharging. Um, there's, there's, there's talk... There's there's talk of um, there's talk of uh, uh, re-upping some of the some of the pandemic uh, uh, countermeasures, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some of the constraints on on our society um, because of a supposed uptick, especially amongst young people. Um, I think the comforting uh, uh, factor. That I see in all of this is that there is a reluctance by the American public at large to go backwards, and that people have definite pandemic fatigue, and as evidenced by even here, just our our current governor uh, here in Michigan, her reluctance to impose these measures, even though she ostensibly has the power to do so, but they are so tremendously unpopular that I think the wisdom of the American people is going to carry the day. Yeah. Because if she wanted to impose it, she would have done it. She would have done it, but she knows how tremendously unpopular it is. Yeah. And at some point, the, the American public has really come to the realization that they just need to, in spite of every risk, in spite of the overflow in the hospitals and so on, that the hospitals need to take their responsibility and prepare for numbers. They've had time. They've had over a year to do so. Yeah. So it's their fault if they don't have the facilities to make sure that they have enough uh, uh, enough beds, right? Yeah, it's their responsibility. It's their responsibility and that we as American individuals have contributed and done our time to help prepare for this pandemic and that now it's time for us to return back to normalcy. I think there's there's a overwhelmingly great buildup of steam for that and that lust for the return to individual life. That was a hell of an ending right there. <laughs> Thank you. A a happy, bear. A Thanks happy for coming ending. out for my first episode. <laughs> I appreciate welcome. it, man. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank everybody, you. for watching.